0: This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com/trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hey
1: everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM.
0: Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original series. I'm Norman Lau, and we have another fantastic show for all of our standard orbiters and red shirts out there in Trek FM land. And with me, as they are always, are my two distinguished co-hosts. We have Mr. Ataz, Jeffrey Harlan. Jeff, how are you? Are you feeling better, Jeff?
2: Yes. uh, Between uh, Dr. Phlox and Dr. McCoy, uh, they seem to have caught whatever it was and wiped it out.
0: They cut it themselves from you or they've yeah. just wiped it out? Uh,
2: well, um, they they had some instrumentation to do it, but uh, yeah, they, they they managed to knock it out.
0: Well I think they knocked it out of you and put it in some type
1: of trans warp beam and sent it over to Ken. Am I right, Ken? Welcome oh, Ken. Hi, hello everyone. Yeah, that's that's what <laughs> happened. Well, actually, Commodore, I was following your orders to go down. Take the pattern buffers out of the transporter, put them on the Octavacron, because we were tired of Mr. Ataz being sick for the last, what, four or five episodes. Medlap sneezes, goes all over the place, infects the Octavacron, infects the transporter, and here I am feeling lousy. So those are the things that happen. And Mr. Ataz, uh, the letter C is in between A to Z. Cure was definitely not part of it. So we need some we need some help on that. When in doubt, blame Schmedlap. I always blame right? Schmedlap. Him and uh, <laughs> him and Umpty Scratch—they create more problems on this ship. But I'll keep them in line, Commodore.
0: Well, we're going to be continuing that great discussion that we had from the last podcast, number 119, and that was The Essentials for Season 1. We are now recording Episode 120, and this is The Essentials Season 2. And the reason why we decided to do these shows is because we wanted to make sure that we were giving you the best advice for what we believed are the most essential episodes of the original series. Not necessarily our favorites and not necessarily uh, what we feel are kind of like the status quo and, and, and agreeing with what everything is, uh, has been listed out there in the top tens and the best ofs. We wanted to give you our top seven choices of what we felt are the essential watching or viewing episodes for season two, much like we did for season one. Boil that down to about our top three, and then let you, our fans and listeners on the Babel Conference, help us suss out the final four and five. We had great feedback the last week from episode 119, Essentials season one, and we're going to read for you right now very quickly what the final episodes that were chosen From the poll on the Babel conference, plus our top three. So our top three from that last episode were Balance of Terror, Arena and City on the Edge of Forever. And literally within three or four votes of each other, Devil in the Dark came in as number four and Errand of Mercy came in as number five. With the Menagerie one and two, a very close six. So, thanks everyone for participating. And now we have our top five episodes that we uh, believe are the essentials for season one.
2: Yeah, uh, it's too bad that Menagerie didn't make it. It would have been glorious.
0: It would have been. <laughs> <laughs> Well played A it, it would have been glorious. I mean, Ken, did you have any um surprises there? Did you think that uh, the menagerie would have like nosed out
1: um by a horto's nose, if no, you will? I uh, I didn't think so. I'm I'm glad the list came out the way it did. I think that's a perfect list for a new listener and I think there was a lot of work that put into it. But uh the menagerie wasn't on my top five, so it it's it's where it should be, I believe.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's still a great episode. Don't get us wrong. All the episodes that we talked about in in 119, they were all fantastic. They're all worth watching. But if you only have like a a small amount of time to squeeze in the essential episodes, these are the five that we believe best suit our criteria. And that criteria is basically what represents Star Trek that we felt is a essential Star Trek. Not, again, not our favorites and not kind of like the, the nostalgic favorites that you see from list to list to list online. So now we're going to get into season two. And for me, and I think it was probably the same for The Chief and for atas these were tougher because, and Ken, I'm gonna quote you, you said that th- there were more really good episodes overall um, in season one, there were more peaks and valleys, but in season two, there were just a, a just a, a general better quality of overall episodes that were really hard to pick from.
1: Am I am I quoting you? Yeah, right that's on that? correct. I thought there was a lot of good going to great, and enough great to get up the top seven, but very difficult to rank those top seven.
0: Yeah, Jeff, did you feel the same way? Oh yes, absolutely. So we're going to start with our seventh pick and then we're going to move all the way down to one and I'm going to switch up the order a little bit. Jeff, I'd like for you to start and then Ken and then I'll end up doing the anchorman position and let's just go for broke. We have not seen each other's lists. And I think that we're going to have some surprises early on, just like we did in the previous episode. And probably around episode three or episode two, we're probably going to be really, really closing that gap. So, drum roll, please. Mr. Ataz, your first pick for episode number seven.
2: I went with Mirror Mirror. Um,.
0: I just fell out of my chair. (laughs) Go ahead.
2: Well, I, I, I feel that this episode, I mean, it's, it's essential Star Trek viewing. I mean, the mirror universe is extremely well known and this is where it all began. Um, But it's also, you know, you, you spend a lot of time more with the mirror universe and seeing how it contrasts with the regular universe and it's fun, but I, I think that uh, there are other episodes that give you a better feel for what season two is all about. Okay, that's
0: a fair point. Was that, I mean, Mirror Mirror is one of those iconic episodes that I think a lot of people, even if you're not the biggest of Star Trek fans, Understand and maybe it's because there's so much involved with the mirror mirror universe and the whole pantheon of Star Trek. So I can see I totally see your point. But when you were whittling down your episodes, were you hmm Mirror Mirror. See it's number seven. Yeah, I can reconcile myself with that. Was that did that come quickly or did you really have to think about that?
2: It was a toss up between that one and Bread and Circuses.
0: Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Now I feel you
1: Okay. All right. How about you, Ken? Number seven. My number seven was the immunity syndrome. This was a, yeah, okay. this was a, a really good episode from a lot of points of view. I like the, uh, the science fiction element of it. I like the um, living organisms in space element of it. I like the fact that there was an all-Vulcan ship involved in it. And that uh, showed one of the shortcomings of the Vulcan race, that they did not have the ability to figure out what was happening to them because it wasn't logical. And so you you put all those pieces together and it came up with my number seven for essential viewing of Star Trek.
0: You know, when I was watching a lot of these episodes and getting my list down, there's a lot of focus on Vulcans in season two, a lot. And maybe it was because Leonard Nimoy's popularity as Spock was getting a lot more attention and they were getting a lot more just content overall to Vulcans. But you're right. The Immunity Syndrome was the first time that we saw an all-Vulcan ship, an all-Vulcan crew. They made mention of that in uh, just some of the lore. Jeff, I'm sure that you would be able to expound on this a little bit.
2: Yeah, there's uh, been a couple of uh, all-Vulcan ships mentioned, uh, and they usually refer back to this episode. Um, In the novels, there was another USS Intrepid that was also all-Vulcan crew. Uh, There's been... uh, in some of the lore, there's also, you know, the USS Eagle was an all-in Dorian crew, things like that. Mm-hmm.
0: And the uh, this was the uh, the Space Amoeba episode. That's right. If I'm correct. Yep, yeah, no, you got it. Okay. Yep. Uh, for me, uh, my number seven episode is The Changeling. And one of the reasons why I chose this episode, and it's a little lower down the list, is because I really like this episode for what it represented, And I like tying this further into what I believe was the progenitor of V'ger because Nomad itself was, you know, it was a probe that was sent out to collect all this great data and all this information. And then they finally found it and we saw what it was able to do. We saw that it had all of this, this, just this arcane amount of information. I liked how it um, was, you know, beaten around and uh, battered and all of its data banks were kind of abused. And they thought that he thought that Kirk was Roy Kirk. The creator, but the one big problem that kept it from going higher and higher on my list is that it was going so well right up until the Nomad wiped out Uhura's mind and they had to retrain her versus killing Scotty and bringing Scotty back to life. So when I was thinking about it, I'm like, well, why didn't Nomad just be ordered to restore Uhura's brain? In her and instead of having to re-educate Uhura, because think about it, all the stuff that Uhura knew about linguistics, she had to retrain on the on the ship. That was my biggest story issue with that particular point, and I, it just didn't work for me there, but everything else did. So I really liked I really like this at, at this stage far in the game in, in, at number seven because there's so many great points to it and of course you have the great Kirk versus machinery and out logicing machinery like he did with Landrew and like he did um with uh, the giant android from what little girls are made of rock mm-hmm. rock I think his name was yeah and uh it was just one of those you know I'm Kirk you're an ultimate computer as and he also outsmarted the uh, the system so that kind of stuff. You know, that's a lot of fun, but it's Nomad. It's technically V'ger's father. Not, I'm, I'm saying V'ger's father, quote unquote, because it's the progenitor of the V'ger story.
2: It's like the joke goes, Star Trek, the motionless picture where Nomad has gone before. Where Nomad
0: has gone before. Exactly. That's not a funny exactly. joke, Jeff.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> not the chief. And chief will have, those are fighting words to the chief. <laughs> oh, I love the motionless
1: so, It's funny. Yeah. yeah.
0: So at number seven, we have, for Jeff, we have Mirror Mirror. For the chief, we have the immunity syndrome, and for me, I have the changeling. So, a nice variation there, but we had that in the last episode on at 119. Our number sevens were a little over the board. So, let's go to number six. ATOS, your number six pick.
2: I went with patterns of force, because how can you go wrong with space Nazis? Uh, this also introduced uh, John Gill, uh, the Federation historian, who Kirk really respected, um, and it had uh, a lot of really interesting elements, and it let them make use of the Paramount backlot and all those Nazi costumes that they had from all the World War II movies.
0: Well, I was thinking about Patterns of Force also, and there was a subject that I wanted to tackle in a future episode of Standard Orbit, which, like you know, the original series' love affair with World War II partially because of what you were talking about, it was really easy to get those resources from Paramount backlot. And heck, you know, being able to help your budget on a TV show that already had a Titan budget is totally the right thing to do. So what else about patterns of force that, Jeff, did you feel that was essential viewing to, okay, you're going to hand patterns of force to somebody, say you need to watch this because this is what Star Trek is about. What, what is it about that that shows that?
2: Well, there's the how how they have the conflict between this is where we came from, this is where we are, this was necessary for us to get where we are. Uh, This is part of our history. We don't like it, but we accept it. And we've moved on. And that's a lesson that I think that still applies today is, you know, there are things in our history that we don't like, but we still have to acknowledge that they happened and we have to learn from those mistakes and we have to move on. And I think that's one of the things that this episode taught.
0: I mean, technically in season one city on the edge of forever, it was a world war II story mm-hmm. in a way patterns of forest, another world war ii ask story. So yeah, I mean, there definitely is a love affair between the original series in some way, the end and world war II. but and there world is war that romantic.
2: romanticism in recent memory for everyone that was on production. A lot of the writers and actors were veterans of that war.
0: Gene Roddenberry himself, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, it was only literally 20 years removed from the end of the war. It's like 1966 to 1945, 21 years. So yeah, it's it's very it's very in the present of those people in 1966. Okay, so we have Patterns of Forest for
1: ATAS. Ken, how about you? Number six. My number six is the Ultimate Computer. This was um, one of my all-time favorites, but it didn't wind up in the top five when I put my my, uh, my criteria, our criteria to the mix. How do we get uh, new and young, exciting people to, 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 to come in? But it, it definitely did well uh, because it is kind of a common trope, I guess, man versus machine and the fear about having the computer, even though that trope went all the way into the next generation, which is kind of funny to me. But, uh, uh, but what I really enjoyed about it, which I think a lot of our fans or new fans would really like, is that they'd be able to see the fleet. It has a very strong beginning. I think it shows um, a lot of character, and you know it's it's a struggle we constantly fight even today. When you talk about man versus machine, and making sure there's that good mix between automation and uh, real labor and things along those lines, so it it's a it's a good movie. It also talks about you know uh, somebody trying to retrieve their greatness, and I don't know when I watch this, I think about all the artists out there, like music artists who start off really young in their career and they're really, really good. And they have that span where it goes maybe five of 10 years of just incredible uh, ability to come up with new songs, new tracks and really be hot. And then 30 years later, they just can't recapture that magic. So they they sing the same songs over again. And I I always see that with, with Dr. Daystrom. He's trying really hard to connect back to his previous glory. But uh, it's, it's a great episode. It's a lot of fun. And I thought that uh, this was appropriate at number six with the rest of my list.
0: You know, the interesting thing about some of our choices in both six and seven is that we're dealing with the responsibility of the individual and not having to rely on technology, but we're in this period in, in Federation history where technology is helping us to advance our, our ability to go further into space, but you can't just rely on that. You still have to rely on instinct and you have to believe in yourself. There's a lot of it's it's confidence versus the computer basically. And, and how do you rely on what you've learned and how do you not completely sell yourself into that? These, uh, These machines are going to be able to do the thinking for you. I mean, Kirk is really much a lot like that. And I think that's probably a sign of the times. When I say sign of the times, I mean, the late 1960s, where don't let this technology, that these computers that are on the rise, take out the individual. Let the individual always make sure that they are... That they're actively engaged in whatever's happening at the time so that's that's what I love about Star Trek and when you're looking at these episodes that's kind of like what they're saying and I think it's still you're right it resonates all the way today don't let all of these gadgets the iPhones and the iPads and your Androids and your tablets don't let those do the thinking for you you still have to think for yourself how many times today do we say okay I can't remember something let's google that but it's you know it's in your brain so, I mean, even I'll admit it when I was looking at stuff for my lists, I'm going to go into the computer and cross reference things. But I know that if I really tried a little bit harder, I probably could have remembered a couple more facts. So great choice, Ken, with the ultimate computer. My number six choice would be a piece of the action. And, and why would I choose this? Why? Why number six? Because for me. I love Star Trek when they do humor and they do humor well. And this is probably the one episode that, in in my opinion, is the better of the two humorous pieces in season two. You had the Trouble with Tribbles and you had a piece of the action. And I know that Trouble with Tribbles is a fan favorite. It's beloved over generations of Star Trek fans. But what I didn't like about Trouble with Tribbles and why I chose piece of the action, because in a piece of the action, it doesn't sacrifice anything. And I think in Trouble with Tribbles, what it's it misrepresented was the Klingons and we had this great start with the Klingon empire and errand of mercy in season one, which made our top five list. And then in trouble with tribbles, they got a little maligned for the comedy's sake. And I don't think that um, that was the intent, but it really took the teeth out of what you were learning about the Klingon empire and turned them more into a comedy act. And I didn't really, uh, I didn't really uh, come to terms with that. Well, And so but going back to the piece of the action, if you want to talk about an episode that is just scene chewing fun for the sake of being fun, it's William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy trying to you're talking about the captain of a starship and his first officer, who is one of the greatest scientists in the Federation. And they're trying to drive a car and they fail miserably. That's just great Star Trek humor at its best. Uh, the, The creation of the game Fizbin. Also, that scene, I mean, they could have just basically said, Shatner, improvise that scene. Talk about a poker game that doesn't even exist. So you have that balance of trying to do something right with the story and you have the uh, the fallout of the contamination of the USS Horizon. What was it like 150 years before? Um,
2: About 100. Something like that.
0: OK, something like that. And then you, they left a book behind. And that book became basically the contamination of an entire society of very adaptable beings. And uh, that was cross-referenced in an Enterprise episode, The Horizon. Um, but it's, it's fun. Uh, it has the great Vic Tabak, who I love, always loved in TV. And it just does humor better, in my opinion, than more of the episodes in Star Trek. So for me, a piece of the action. Oh, and I just love it when Spock zeroes his machine gun on Bella Oxmix and he just says, I would advise you to keep dialing Oxmix. You never see Leonard Nimoy do humor as good as he does humor in this episode. And he does it so straight laced, it's hilarious. So for number six, what a great varied list we have so far. We have Atos with Patterns of Force. We have the Chief with the Ultimate Computer. And my choice is a piece of the action. So in our previous show, we were a little bit closer to the mark with each other. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see what we have for our top five episodes. So Ata's for number five, what do you have?
2: I picked *Simon earth. Uh, this one's a, a little bit, uh, more iffy, uh, because technically this was a backdoor pilot for another show entirely. And the enterprise crew actually kind of took a back seat, but it still had the relevant social commentary of the time. Uh, except it was a little more overt this time because they actually traveled back in time to the time period that the show was actually set, uh, uh, being filmed in. Uh, So you have the Enterprise in the 60s talking about the threat of nuclear war and them trying to prevent a, you know, nuclear uh, weapons from being placed in orbit. I mean, that's right on the nose and it's about as on the nose as it comes with Star Trek. But uh, it's... uh, it's a lot of fun. It's more time travel. I just love time travel stories and you didn't have as much time travel in season two as you did in season one, but uh, this was a good one.
0: And I do believe that this is a, one of our very own. um, It was Andy's Ninja cat episode. Mm -hmm. Yep. And uh, you can find that t-shirt on redbubble.com. If you just search the field with Trek FM. So just a little plug there for the Ninja cat.
2: Ninja cat names Isis. That's right.
0: The ISIS. So, um, and then there's also the great Doctor Who references oh, that yeah. kind of spill over between Gary Seven and his... The,
2: the funny thing is, is that... Uh, sonic Screwdriver. Doctor Who and this episode weren't that far apart in time. I mean, the... Uh, um, <laughs> I see know, what you did there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, Doctor Who premiered, like just three years before the original series so it'd been on the air for all of about four or five years at this point in uh, in england
0: right, right so
2: it still uh, really wasn't known over here in the u.s at all
0: but the similarities are st- yeah they're strange
2: similarities and i think the sonic screwdriver didn't really get introduced until right about the same time as this episode right
0: hmm maybe they're sharing secrets <laughs> You know, Verity Lambert and Lucille Ball were probably having coffee one day talking about their shows, right? <laughs> so, okay, so we have a Simon Earth for Atos. Ken, your episode
1: five pick. My episode five is Journey to Bay. The reason why, there is a bunch of reasons. We get introduced to Spock's dad, Sarek, his mom, Amanda. This leads you down the trail to Star Trek Three, Star Trek Four, Star Trek The Undiscovered Country, Star Trek 09. There's a lot of connectivity with this episode. Uh, that that follows it. It even follows it into TNG with Sarek as well. And we probably have the best display ever of true Kirk Fu. How could anybody not want to see that? So that is why I chose Journey to Babel at number five. Uh,
0: and it's such a strong episode. It's so iconic for the original series. And it, because... Jeff and I, you know, we were both really heavily involved with Warp 5. I mean, it inspired probably one of the best arcs, if not the best arc in season four. And that's the Babel arc with the coming together of the Orions and the Tellarites and the Vulcans through Captain Archer. And this is kind of like it's interesting that this is the fruit of that labor. But this was the episode that started it all for just showing the breadth of the Federation and it was neat. I loved the costuming in the in the conference scene and in, in the um, where everybody met everybody for the first time. And it was also really funny to see um, DeForest Kelly do the the Vulcan salute. And uh, it was really nice to see everyone in formal
1: well, attire. DeForest as well. Kelly's line about a teddy bear just cannot be reproduced anywhere. That was just beautiful.
0: Right, and this is this is referencing the Salot from the That's animated right.
1: series yesteryear, correct,
2: Jeff? Yes, and it was also appeared on Enterprise.
0: That's right. So a lot of pay it forward with this episode for sure, which mm-hmm. is why it it's sounds, a great it pick. Yeah, a, right, great pick for the Essentials Collection. Okay, so I think we're getting a little bit closer, but in um, a few a few other picks for me, but for my number five pick, I have the Omega Glory. And I have to be honest, this is a little of a selfish pick, but coincidentally, I think it is one of those essentials topic type picks because it is one of the three scripts that was submitted for the second pilot after the cage. Uh, This was submitted with, um, I believe it was Mud's Women and Where No Man Has Gone Before. And we know that Where No Man Has Gone Before was picked and that became the successful second pilot with Kirk. but. For me, the Omega Glory, it hits those really weird, abstract, parallel earth narratives like Miri um, that, that show the strangeness of science fiction in the 1960s. I mean, there was an obvious statement that had the whole, the Yankees, the Yangs versus the communists or the Combs. You had the really interesting reveal of the stars and stripes at the end. You had the great Kurt performance at the end with the e Plebdista, or we the people you know the that great ending where you're they're talking about something that is very united states esque and for me the selfish part is i loved absolutely loved morgan woodward in the original series in season 1 you had him in um uh, as playing simon van gelder uh, in Dagger of the Mind, and then he reprises uh, uh, coming back to the original series as one of my favorite captains, the completely deranged Ron Tracy of the ill-fated USS Exeter, who I will argue this to this day with any original series fan. He gave Kirk the beat down in this episode. With the exception of the Brazilian strap match at the end where Kirk had to win, he took Kirk out every single time they went to fisticuffs. So you want to talk about Kirk Foo, uh, Chief? You had Tracy Fu. OK, so but I really like the Omega Glory a lot. I, I know that it's probably not one of the fan favorites, but for the reasons I listed, I think it is an, an, um, an interesting choice for representing what it could have been a great season one episode. Um, and I think it, it has a lot of merit as a season two essential episode. So, for episode five choices, we're still a little across the board here. We have ATOS at Assignment Earth. We have the Chief at Journey to Babel. And my pick is the Omega Glory. A lot of interesting stuff happening here. So, let's see how we are going to do with our choices for episode four. So, ATOS, episode four, what do you have?
2: Well, speaking of Kirk Fu and uh, Kirk getting beat down, uh, I went with a mock time. Um, this introduced us to a ton of Vulcan culture, which, again, which would pay off later on in throughout the series and the franchise. Uh, it's just... Pretty much every Vulcan episode in this season, it, I think, would be uh, essential viewing.
0: Because... <sighs> It's so... I mean, the history is so rich. I know that um, our Warp 5 co-host, Floyd Dorsey, is a huge, huge Vulcan history fan. So I would love to hear him reply to how far down the list this is, or it's kind of middle of the list, but maybe it's too far down the list for him. I'm sure he would probably throw this or throw this as as a number one pick, but... Do you think it's because, as I mentioned before, Jeff, do you think it's because that Leonard Nimoy was getting a ton more fan mail and they wanted to get him on screen a little bit more? And that's that's that romantic nature of understanding a culture that we've never seen before. in alien culture just resonated a lot more with the viewers at the time.
2: That and I think it also resonated with the writers at the time, too, because it's just so much more interesting to write for a character that you know nothing about his backstory at all. Uh, Kirk, you know, he's human. He's. From Earth, you know they hadn't established that he was from Iowa yet. But uh, uh, he's pretty much a known quantity as terms of you know where he's coming from. Spock, not so much, and this lets them play around with that. What's his backstory? You know where did he come from? What's driving him? And now we find out that Vulcans are driven to mate every seven years, and. They have to return to their home world to do so, um, which I think is kind of interesting because it's like a sturgeon, and this was written by Theodore Sturgeon <laughs> um, you know, what an awesome coincidence awesome right? coincidence you have <laughs> someone with the last name sounds very much like a fish writing mm-hmm. about uh, a species that has mating habits that are very much like a fish. <laughs> I, I wonder if that played a part in it. Uh, possibly it might just be a coincidence. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. um, I, I was always amused by that. But, uh, you know, this is just a really fascinating look into Vulcan culture. And we actually learn a little bit of Vulcan language for the first time, too, because they use a few Vulcan words. And that's the first time right. that we've actually heard an alien language on the series, as far as I can remember.
0: And to go a little bit further with that, we see T'Pau. Who is this? You know, the high priestess and this great legendary figure of the Vulcan society. Only person who refused
2: who, a seat on the Federation Council.
0: Federation Council, right? And unfortunately, in Enterprise, because of copyright issues, we weren't allowed to name, or they weren't allowed to name, to Paul, to but she was supposed to have been to Paul. I mean, to Powell Sorry, and that's where you were going to have this. This tie back all the way to Enterprise is that T'Pol was supposed to have been Archer's second in command.
2: I think it worked out better the way it did, though. With uh, you know T'Pau finally showing up in season four, I think that worked better um, for the character of T'Pol as we saw her in the original series, because she seemed like she really didn't have a whole lot of contact with humans. And she didn't. And that
0: was during the the Kirshara trilogy. Well, I mean,
2: in a mock time, she seemed like she didn't have a whole lot of contact with humans to speak of. Uh, She just, for whatever her reasons were, she just felt uh, content to remain on Vulcan and just be surrounded by Vulcans.
0: Okay. Okay. Now I get
1: that. Uh, How about you, Ken? How about your episode four pick? My episode four pick is Mirror Mirror. So. I think this is the first time we've shared anything on the list, right? Even though our numbers are off a little bit. So, yeah. I think so. So, finally, at number four, Mirror, Mirror. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. it. It plays into so many of the other episodes. I mean, In a Mirror, Darkly is my favorite episode of Enterprise. Episodes of Enterprise. I like how it plays into mm-hmm. DS9 especially. But it's just a great story arc. It uh, takes our characters into a whole new adventure. I thought it was very clever. And uh, it was very well made. It was a lot of fun to watch. And it, for me, if, if I'm trying to get new viewers to watch and they're kind of watching, maybe going back to the original episode of uh, the original series and working their way forward, then this to me would be a critical one to watch so that it would be easier to understand As you did your rewatch of Enterprise and DS9 along the way. Hmm, to absolutely agree. Mirror Mirror affects it just affects so
0: many threads in Star Trek. And I think it's important to have this on the list at whatever rank, just because it represents where this whole parallel issue or this parallel dynamic comes from, because it just, it spawns so many things. And I don't know how much more you can talk. We could spend an entire episode and we should on it uh, later on, but uh, for the, um, for the sake of time and for uh, getting to our other choices, uh, we are going to move forward uh, and talk about um, my final pick for episode four, and that would be Journey to Babel. Now we're starting to, you know, we're, we're closing the gap here because, Ken, you and I talked about this and you said there are a lot of great episodes that you picked for, for you know, the seven picks. But rearranging them in the order that you, you thought were um, important to um, maybe a little bit more fringe, where it, that was the toughest thing to do because... There are a handful of great episodes in in season two, and I think that some of the ones that that are, again, closing this list are are probably going to be a little bit more well-represented. What I loved about Journey to Babel is that it just shows the representation of Starfleet. For an essential viewing aspect, it shows you and talks about the uh, founding members of the United Federation of Planets. You know, you had a great scene where you had Sarek, you had Kirk, you had the... uh, Tellerate ambassador. And you had, uh, an, well, you had an Orion, but he wasn't, I mean, sorry, you had an, um, an Andorian, but he was an Orion in disguise. So you had all of these founding members on screen. You also showed a lot of the diversity of all of these Federation delegates, you know, in the uh, banquet scene. So and it showed a lot of um, some really nice production aspects. You had the uh, the formal costumes. Uh, you had the very first um, uh, the on screen appearance of Sarek and um, Spock's father and Amanda Spock's mother. There's so much going on with this episode that's just so iconically Star Trek. It would take literally days to talk about everything that's awesome about Journey to Babel. So um, one of the things I wanted to talk about though, and uh, it's a small uh, a small note uh, in trivia. That uh, it was D.C. Fontana uh, writing this. And in my opinion, I mean, she wrote, I think, around 10-ish episodes uh, for the original series. Um, Don't quote me on that, people. I'm not not the expert here. But I think that in all of those, this is probably her best, in my opinion. I think it's because it touches on so many things. And she wanted to create an episode that specifically talked about Spock's backstory, his parents, uh, and, and his relationship with how he came into Starfleet. So that's really important. So, for episodes four, we have Jeff with a mock time, we have Ken with Mirror Mirror, and my pick is Journey to Babel. So, here we are. We're getting to where the rubber meets the road, and ATOS's pick for number three is
2: I went with the Doomsday Machine uh, Commodore Decker, uh, planet killing machine, destroying planets. This has it all. I mean, it's 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 an awesome episode. I, I loved it. I enjoyed it. Uh, you have Decker trying to take over the Enterprise when he's obviously in no state to do so, and Spock trying to take him out of command of the Enterprise. And it's just you know a lot of give and take there. At the same time, they're trying to fight off this machine that's destroying planets and has armor that their weapons can't penetrate. And it's just really fun to watch. Really good romp of an episode.
1: Now,
0: I remember you guys were talking about the Commodores in a a few episodes ago. And Jeff, you had a really good point there. In the Doomsday Machine, we saw Commodore Decker at his, probably at his worst, not at his best. But there were shades of command brilliance that was happening there in the Doomsday Machine he was obviously deranged when he was making those decisions, but you could see that William Wyndham, who is one of my favorite actors, I mean, he goes right up there with Morgan Woodward. He has such a great air about him and, and presence on the bridge. I liked how he sat in the command chair with his legs crossed. He's just, he knew what he was doing. He had some very Captain Ahab-esque motives, but he definitely knew his way around command and he knew how to handle a crew. So what did you think about his performance there?
2: I loved it. I mean, I could tell that they were trying to show us that this guy used to be just this brilliant commander, somebody that Kirk would look up to, and he just snapped after losing his crew the way he did. You know, the the whole, you know, I beamed my crew down to the planet, you know, Commodore, there is no planet. Don't you think I know that? You know, it, it's just really great uh, I I have no words. I mean, it's that good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the words, the, the, there are so many words, but they're also, it's, it's hard to get it all in. I understand. So fantastic choice for number three. And how about you, Chief? Your number
1: three. My number three is a mock time. So, yep. So okay. we're, we're definitely closing things up. I think amongst us all, we're all sitting right around that, that same area. For the reason I chose mm-hmm. number three, again, Vulcan history, uh, a lot from this episode that, that feeds into the new movies, uh, that feeds into uh, the, well, I guess the, the the original series movies as well. And, you know, especially Star Trek three. I mean, there's a lot that goes uh, along with this episode in Star Trek three. So if you didn't see this and you watched Star Trek three, I think you might have a little bit of gaps in trying to figure out what's happening with that movie, especially where Spock is concerned. Overall, uh, this this movie, uh, excuse me, this TV show, this episode, I can't speak at all. This episode, I'm locked up. Um, <laughs> it was it was it, it, for me. It was it was a big cornerstone change because you you wanted to see the home world of Vulcan, and and, and we get a good glimpse of it. Uh, you get an idea, I guess, of the 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 politics. I'm glad that um, T'Pol wasn't T'Pol either because I don't know how T'Pol could ever pull out a german accent using very british terms <laughs> so it would have been it would have been a heck of a a, a heck of a, a journey for her to take in order to do that but a, a great episode learned a lot about spock but the best part of it all was the very end so many of the endings of star trek episodes uh, are you know kind of goofy and funny but but spock's reaction when he sees captain kirk alive is probably the single best reaction throughout the entire series for Linda Nimoy, and, and that was just precious. And, um, you know, even, even McCoy's dry wit at the very end, they could have just ended it with that reaction and it would have been perfect, but that, that's why I chose that for number three.
0: I, I agree, and, and, like, and, and just to uh, help you out there, Ken, because you said you're having a little bit of difficulty discussing uh, a mock time, I am going to continue that because my episode three pick is also a mock time. And there are so many, there's so many of the words that you can say about a mock time. Um, actually, in my notes, I wrote down a couple of things I really wanted to discuss in the specifics. There are many firsts in a mock time. This is the first on on-screen appearance of Walter Koenig as Pavel Chekhov. Okay, so you have, uh, and this is the very first episode of the second season. It started off right out of the gate. So strong. I mean, it's, you know, when you have all these elements of Vulcan history, um, you have the let's see here. Spock reads the You have the first, uh, you know, first contact with the uh, with his Vulcan greeting, live long and prosper. Um, and it's the very first time that we have DeForest Kelly in the opening credits. So also, this is the very first ever Star Trek episodes to feature any Vulcan characters other than Spock. It marked the first use of the Vulcan salute. Um, I said that before and then it said his, it established the trend among all female Vulcans to have a name beginning with a T and apostrophe like to pal to pring, to Paul uh, to Planahoff. Um, so there's a lot of world building that's going on with this episode. And I have to shout out here to Brendan Shamatala because in the previous episode, I said that it was arena that started the, the, the famous combat music, uh, That, um, you know, between the and a combatant, it really kind of started here in a mock time that all the horns and all the kind of uh, almost Vulcan esque uh, trappings in that music, you know, that everyone knows that. Right. As soon as I hum that everyone knows at least five scenes that you can pick out in Star Trek with that music. So, yeah, without gushing on it any further, a mock time uh, is my third pick. So you have Jeff with Doomsday Machine. And both the chief and I with a mock time. Those are from pretty strong choices. So but like, here's, here's where it really comes uh, to pay off uh, with all the deliberation that we've done in the last week or so. We have episode two and Ataz, let's hear your choice for your pick for episode two.
2: Well, before I get to that, I'm going to add something on uh, a mock time there. Um, oh, for sure. Okay. I have a theory about the whole T apostrophe prefix on Vulcan women names because we have a few Vulcan women that don't have that prefix and everyone that we've seen that has that prefix is either married or betrothed so maybe the ones that don't have it aren't like Savic and like, Valeris
0: but aren't also Savic and Valeris half Romulan
2: uh Savik they dropped those scenes from the show. It's been picked up in the novels and the comics, but never officially Valeris that was never established for her.
0: So would they be to Savik? I guess. <laughs> or to Valeris.
2: <laughs> but that Babel Conference,
0: yeah. we want to know. What do you think?
2: That that's my theory and I'm sticking to it.
0: I dig it. Hey, you know, it's, it's as good a theory as any. So, um, and we can throw that out in the Babel conference, see what those people have to say, right. but, uh, so getting into episode two, what's your episode two my pick, number two
2: is the ultimate computer okay. uh, for many of the same reasons that were brought up earlier. Um, you know, we've got Kirk versus the machine. We've got daystrom trying to capture past glory. Um, just very human, uh, motivations on these, you know, Kirk doesn't want to be supplanted by a machine. He doesn't feel that they are capable of doing his job. They can't think on the fly the way that he does. Uh, you know. And it's a little bit anti-technology at the same time as it's pro-technology. It's kind of a, a weird juxtaposition of the two, uh, but it's saying that we can use technology as a tool it can do amazing things for us but we still need to have people out there to do the exploring because weird stuff happens and we need people to be able to think on their feet and sometimes things aren't always as they seem and a computer isn't always going to recognize that
0: yep absolutely no those are,
2: and that's it's an interesting
0: aspect especially when technology was on the rise at the time, but you can't depend on it. It's it's about, again, it's about trusting yourself and trusting your abilities as an individual and as somebody who's a free thinker versus something that just gets locked into a system and... But you're just supposed to trust it just because so there's in the 1960s there was this very much a free thinking versus establishment movement going on between especially with uh, younger people versus the older establishment and kirk always kind of represented that um free thinking independent free spirit uh, versus the establishment so that's very much akin to what star trek was about in representing uh the parallels between um society at the time uh guised in science fiction uh, fantastic choice and
1: ken how about you? Number two. Number two was the trouble with tribbles, and I I listened very intently to what you were talking about with a piece of the action, and I think you made a lot of good points. Uh, for me, though, I, I I did enjoy the humor. Um, the writing was good. It wasn't great, but it was good, and I think that there's a lot of bridges with trouble with tribbles, specifically with DS9 and Trials and Tribulations, and you know we we kind of get a um, I guess our first glimpse that there was actually more to the makeup and Star Trek the motion picture and that the uh, Klingons were not supposed to have ridges, but then they did have ridges. And I thought DS9 kind of went back to that in a, in a very fun way. But I really, really enjoyed that scene uh, with the crew getting disciplined and Kirk going up and down the line. And and that was a precious scene with James Doohan as, as Mr. Scott, when he talked about um, insulting the the ship versus insulting the captain and what started that fight there are there are a few things that stick out in the series uh, that that really capture you and for me, that was really one because it really defined who Scotty was, much more so than we knew and I thought it was great. I also like the fact that he was you know trying to keep everybody calm right up until that point and then he loses it so it's uh it 's a very special episode, like I said it was it it's, I think it would definitely be um, essential viewing for a new fan and i think they would really really enjoy it and they would see the connectivity to it and that's what's driving it again the writing was okay it wasn't great but it was still a lot of fun
0: well, a lot really does connect back to Trouble with Tribbles, like you said. And, and even the Augments storyline with the Klingon virus in Enterprise goes all the way back to that to try and actually retcon the the forehead ridges that started with the motion picture. So it really does come full circle. And it, I think it hits probably every single series in some way, um, specifically, though, DS9 with uh, the Tribbles episode and then an Enterprise with the uh, Klingon virus episode. So
2: And Flox giving a Tribble to one of his pets.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. and then in, also, yeah, So And then, you know, we had a Tribble in 2009. Oh, I'm sorry, it, well, both 2009 and Into Darkness because that's how uh, McCoy was able to figure out that Khan's blood was able to save life, if you will. And there was so, also
2: the Tribble episode written by the same writer as this episode. Uh, and then from, there was one in... From the animated series.
0: Right. What was that that was the more troubles, more yes. triples right? Right. So it does touch on a lot and it would be supremely uh, informative for anyone coming into the original series to be able to to glean a lot of information off of this. So, wow, gosh, we have uh, great choices with the ultimate computer. The trouble with triples my number two pick is mirror mirror. I mean, we've discussed it very heavily in this episode, but for me, uh, there are certain specific Iconic moments in Star Trek that pretty much hit everything across the board. Mirror Mirror for me is one of those episodes that it's a first again. It's the first time that we see an alternate dimension. And it's the first time that we and probably the only time that we see Spock with facial hair. And there's the whole theory on that as to why, because the only other time that we see a Vulcan with facial hair would be in the uh, Enterprise episode uh, in a Mirror Darkly one and two when Saval had a goatee. So there's something there with that line of logic with the writers, but mirror, mirror, it started this trend in Star Trek with having this parallel universe and being able to use that as a storytelling aspect. With especially with Deep Space Nine, there were two Deep Space Nine episodes, right, Jeff? With uh, the alternate
2: three or four, there were there were a number of them. It was an entire arc that spanned from the second season all the way to the um, the seventh. So there were. I think there were at least five, because I know they did at least once per season. I think there might have been two episodes in one of them.
0: And in the Next Generation, there was none. Although I kind of take Yesterday's Enterprise as being almost a Mirror Mirror esque episode, but
2: aside from the novels, yeah, the Next Generation never went into the uh, to the Mirror Universe.
0: And I'm not very well versed in Voyager. I'll be the first one to admit it. But was there no an alternate? Okay, so it's nothing it's, in Voyager uh, either. But Tuvok
2: did appear in one of the DS Nine Mirror Universe episodes.
0: As as Tuvok. Mm-hmm. He was oh, okay. part of uh,
2: Cisco's uh, uh, rebel cell. Okay.
0: So it's very far reaching this episode and a couple of interesting trivia bits that I found online. So it says here that as Mir Sulu, a security chief of the Imperial starship enterprise, uh, George Takei wears a red uniform. He wore gold uh, as usually in his uh, tenure as Sulu. And then he wore blue in where no man has gone before. So George Takei is the first Trek actor and maybe the only Trek actor that I know of to wear all three uniform colors data, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, Another scene that I wanted to talk about was this is the only time I remember when when, at the very end when they were going to get on the transporter pad, Scotty puts his hand on Kirk's shoulder and he goes, Jim. And I go, wow, that was very informal, but very caring at the same time where Scotty was like, no, 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 no. You're far too valuable as a friend and as my captain to sacrifice yourself. So I thought that was a really nice scene. But this episode also has one of my all-time favorite quotes in the original series. And that's when Kirk said, before he beamed back to his universe, in every revolution, there's one man with a vision. I've loved that quote ever since I saw it. And it always brings me back to the original series. So... There again, there are just so many great parts about this that I can talk about. But for me, mirror, mirror, that's why this is so high up on my list. Was there anything else you wanted to add, Jeff? You were, well, you were shaking your head a lot there. No,
2: I was. I, I was just trying to think of uh, other actors that might have worn all three colors. The only one that I can think of maybe would have been uh, Brent Spiner's Data, because um, I know he wore gold most of the time. He wore red uh, when he was made uh, executive officer under Jellicoe. And I think there was one of the universes in um, Parallels that, where he wore blue.
0: Okay. I know that Picard has worn both. He's worn maroon, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then he wore um, science offices blue and tapestry. Mm-hmm.
2: I don't think he wore gold, though.
0: No, I don't. I can't remember when he wore gold. So uh, here's some trivia, Babel Conference members. When you hear this episode, why don't you uh, type that up for us and let us know? So, OK, so... We've been kind of barreling through this, and I want to give the number one choice a lot of its due diligence and, and respect and time. So I'm going to take a deep breath. You probably just heard that on the microphone. I just took a really deep breath. And we're going to talk about our number one pick. And we're going to start with Jeff, and we're going to go around the horn, and we're just going to, we're going to tell it like it is. These are our number one picks for essential viewing for season two of the original series. So go.
2: Well, I'm going to give us our third unanimous pick, uh, Journey to Babel. Uh this one it's got another episode on uh, starting at Vulcan. You've got Sarek and Amanda, you've got the first appearance of the Tellurites and the Andorians. Uh you've got the involvement with the Orion's. Turns out one of the Andorians, the one that you see most of the time isn't even actually an Andorian. So <laughs> he's actually, you know, in disguise. But uh, so, like, the first Andorian you see isn't actually an Andorian, which is kind of crazy.
0: I know we're cheated. Yeah. So we don't, it's kind of like, well, are these really Andorians or not, yeah. right? So well, uh, he, was, he was a surgically altered Orion, yeah. right?
2: Yeah. 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 And then, uh, you know, you've got, uh, you know, the Kirkfu. You've got, uh, you know, the references to the Salots. We finally see a Selot on the animated series. And again, on Enterprise, uh, you know, it, there's follow up from this in every series, because this leads into story elements and plot threads and um, little bits and pieces about these different species and characters that carry on for decades throughout the franchise.
1: You know, nobody ferries diplomats like the original series. Let's just put it out there, right? I mean, there's action and adventure and the other shows, they, they, they don't even come close.
0: No, you had Robert Fox in uh, A Taste of Armageddon. You had the all of the delegates of the Federation on Journey to Babel. You're right. You know, the the enterprise is I think that's why they made the Excelsior class. You know, they needed that. The ambassador, uh, the ambassador taxi, if you will, to get people back and forth. (laughs) So, um, okay, so gosh, we could go on and on and on again with Journey to Babel. But you're right. That's our third unanimous pick for The Essentials season two. So Chief, your number one Mind pick. the
1: Doomsday Machine. That is the quintessential story, I think, for a new Star Trek fan to really start off with a lot of action, a great plot point. Uh, and one of the things too, that, that I think that has come full circle for us. You know, I grew up, uh, you know, I was born in 66. And I grew up under the aegis of mutually assured destruction, right? And that's what a lot of Doomsday Machine was talking about. Getting so caught up with technology that could destroy one side that the same weapon could destroy you too. And we're seeing it today. We're seeing it today with North Korea. Uh, We're seeing it with ICE. We're seeing it all over again. So I I grew up with that fear um, of mad. And this story really brought it home. And though we're trying to watch this through the lens of somebody else, I think the points that I was just making about what's going on in this world today with the weapons of mass destruction that uh, some of the more evil people on the planet are trying to get their arms around shows that they could be making a huge mistake, that they could kill themselves more than they could kill, quote unquote, the good guys. And... To me, it's very, very relevant. So that's what that, that was a big part of it. The other piece of it, of course, was Commodore Matt Decker. I mean, I, I, you guys said it all. Uh, William Weldon just played a great, great character. He did it magnificently. Uh, you wanted him to win somehow, and then, you know, he, he offered himself, uh, even though he lost it a bit on the bridge of the Enterprise, he sacrificed himself he figured out what the weakness was or his actions allowed them to figure out what the ac- the weakness of the uh, the machine was and allowed them to to destroy it so i i think it's 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 just a great watch if i have to watch a star trek episode specifically uh season 2 this is the first one i put on
0: uh, and that's a fantastic review ken and you and i um on the previous episode we both agreed on our number one picks, Balance of Terror. And I'm going to continue that tradition with my number one pick here because for me, essentially for season two, it's the Doomsday Machine. Uh, for pretty much, and this is our fourth, mm-hmm. I believe, unanimous pick. There are so many things that, has, that have already been said about this episode. The Enterprise, it discovers this weapon of mass destruction that's being... It's it's on automated pilot and it's just destroying entire civilizations and planets, for no reason aside from the programming of its original creators. That is in and of itself at the time because you were living, uh, like you said, Ken, you were living under this uh, this threat of a global annihilation, especially with the power struggle that was going on between the United States and Russia, and I believe it was the, it was in Khrushchev. Um, That carried on all the way into the late 1980s between, you know, Reagan and Gorbachev. Yeah,
2: I was in, I grew up in Germany during that time. You know, we were, you know, constantly on alert, waiting for the Russian tanks to come pouring through the folded gap, you know, ready to, you know, take off and head back.
0: But aside from that science fiction plot point, which was mirroring a lot of the emotions and the tenets of the time you really take a look at the the central point of this episode, and that is, for me, it's always been Matt Decker. You have this fantastic performance. It's probably one of the best performances in the entirety of the original series by William Wyndham, who wasn't the first choice for Matt Decker. But what he brought you was what Kirk could have become if the situations were right. If Kirk was up against that particular scenario, which in my opinion was really the first true example of the Kobayashi Maru that we saw on screen. It was the unwinnable scenario, right? And Ken, did you want to say something in there? I'm sorry, okay. So you had Kirk going up against, and you had, well, first you had Matt Decker going up against this unbeatable ship And he lost his entire crew. And now you had another ship coming in and he thought he would be able to turn the tables on it from what he knew. But he was already completely deranged and broken by that time. He wasn't thinking straight. But as I said before, there were glimmers of how great he was in command. He understood what he needed to do to get the job done. And this also, in my opinion, started this great relationship with this Moby Dick trend that we had in Star Trek, especially in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, because the Doomsday Machine essentially was Decker's white whale. So he wanted to keep going for it, and against all of his better instincts that would have protected his crew, he wanted to seek revenge. And also it had this great Probably one of the best quotes in Star Trek and also one of my favorites where Spock's, you know, to Decker, he said, you know, Commodore, I do not wish to place you under arrest. You wouldn't dare. You're bluffing. Vulcans never bluff. (laughs) I've always loved that. Um, I can go on for hours on this episode, but. Another thing I wanted to point out is just the sheer amount of remastering that went on in the HD remastered version of this episode. It has taken this episode literally to new heights. I loved it before, before it was recut into the remastered. And I love it even more so because you get the dynamics of the combat sequences and just the sheer scale of this Doomsday Machine. So, yes, the Doomsday Machine is my number one pick. It very well might be my number one pick for all of the original series, but we'll see as I visit ep, um, season three. But uh, there we there we have it. Uh, we have episode one. the have the Doomsday Machine, Journey to Babel, and the Doomsday Machine. Uh, so I don't think that anyone out there can really argue with those choices. So we have four out of five. Um, and I do believe that all of the other
2: uh, we have selections. Uh, one that has two votes and the, I think the rest are just one vote each.
0: Which was the one that had two votes? Um, ultimate, oh, the, the ultimate, ultimate computer. computer had two votes. OK, so what we will do since we have four out of five, um, we have the Babel conference, which has been so tremendous. All the listeners there and all of our supporters, uh, they will get a poll uh, in the next upcoming few days after we you know well we're going to publish this episode and then we'll put the poll up and they will help us decide what that fifth pick is and we'll we're just kind of going to go from there we're going to have the ultimate computer on there obviously and then I'm going to put all of the the onesies that we have and see what they can come up with um for for that choice because I think that The Ultimate Computer and one of those other choices should really be kind of like five and six and see which one, because there's so many there that are really good choices. Trouble with Tribbles, Assignment Earth, Patterns of Force, Piece of the Action, Changeling, Immunity Syndrome, um, all great choices. So we're going to let them help us decide and see because we have a lot of fans there for the original series. So with our top four, we have The Doomsday Machine, Journey to Babel, Mirror, Mirror, Mirror and a mock time any surprises in there no no Ken?
1: surprises those are all great episodes and i thought this was very diligently done by by everybody on the show very very well done i i don't have anything more to add than you know the, these and you know, i i i think all these episodes are, are very strong and very well thought out and and i think um i wouldn't say the word argued but i think the cases were pledged uh, with a lot of detail i think that um you know, Jeff, you, you, you come at it from a little bit different angle than than me and Norm do, which is refreshing. So it it, it doesn't get stagnant in there, even though we've kind of come up to similar lists. So I think it, it adds just the right amount of variety. And I'm curious as to hear what our listeners think is their top five, as well as what they'll be voting for, for number five. How about you, Jeff? Um
0: the variety that we have in there. I know that we were trying to stay away from a lot of kind of like the traditional lists, but with three different perspectives and getting to where we ended up, were you surprised that we were hitting a lot of kind of the traditionalist sentiments in those lists?
2: Um, a couple of the episodes I pretty much expected we're going to get hit by at least two of us. Um, I was actually kind of surprised we had as many unanimous votes as we did. Um, I really enjoyed all of season two. I mean, there's just so many good episodes. Like we were saying, it's just hard to pick which ones we were going to put on our lists. And it's uh, I I think it's really telling to the strengths of this season how many uh, we all picked as being uh, on our top uh, top seven.
0: Yep, absolutely. And this is going to continue on. We have one more essential show where we're going to deliberate on and try and find a way to agree on the top five episodes for season three. And then we're going to have our ultimate essentials list and see if we can put some sense in some order and rank from the 15 episodes that we've chosen, the viewing order or possibly what we believe are the essentials in terms of their importance to the overall canon that's going to be, I think, a little bit more difficult because now you're dealing with kind of like the top. This is going to be our top gun list of the essentials. So Ken and Jeff, thank you so much for just, again, doing your due diligence and working so hard on your lists and really bringing something fantastic to talk about for today's show. Before we get going, I want to open up Hailing Frequency. So Hailing Frequency is open.
1: Hailing frequencies are open.
0: We had a really interesting email come in. Fantastic email, actually, from Thomas Flint, one of the listeners on the Babel Conference and one of our fans there. And I just wanted to read this particular email because we are a live show and we prepare as best as we can. But there obviously are times where there are just a couple of discrepancies that happen on the mic and... Our fans would like to let us know that they found a couple. So Thomas Flint said on Standard Orbit 118, he states that I believe it was stated that the actor who played Commodore Stone, Percy Rodriguez, also did Dr. Richard Daystrom. Daystrom was superbly brought to the screen by William Marshall. So that's just something that we've had a little bit of a slip there. I also do believe that uh, our associate producer, MRS also uh, gave us a couple of these similar corrections on Twitter, Jeff, between you and me. Mm-hmm. And that's fantastic because as associate producer, she has absolutely that right to, to correct us. She, she has that rank. And on Standard Orbit 119, Thomas also pointed out that Leonard... <laughs> and I kick myself every single day I listen to this one uh, because I should know better. Leonard directed Star Trek IV, not Nick Meyer... So my apologies there, everyone. Norm said he co-wrote and directed for Meyer co-wrote and was consultant of sorts. In fact, he wrote the 1980s material, including Spock's judging of the pollution content line, while Harv Bennett uh, wrote the 23rd century portions. Also, the audio this time was fairly unbalanced. Jeff was quite difficult to hear. I kept adjusting the volume. I download podcasts from iTunes. So thank you for that. And we're, we always try and check our technical specs as best we can. But... Um, we are always a learning, growing process here in podcasts. So uh, thank you for all the input there, Thomas. And we will make sure that uh, we have some of those. We'll get <laughs>
1: Schmedlap on it because he already, you know, he's already on it. That's we, really we, his, have, we got right on that as soon as we saw that note and we figured out what the problem was. So, yeah. And if he doesn't fix it,
0: we'll give him a bucket of potatoes. and that's, we'll that's
1: right. And, you know, I take full responsibility and blame Jeff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would, too. So <laughs> because he could have given us the trifecta on number one, but he had to know he had to go and be like, I don't know, independent, much like Kirk was against, uh, you know, the ultimate computer and give us Journey to Babel. Why would he do that? So just, he's just um, that. Way. He's just <laughs> that way. So in our final thoughts, thanks, everyone, for participating in the Babel conference. Uh, we're going to get you a great list. Uh, we have four great choices and we're pretty sure that you're going to be able to give us our fifth. And this was a lot of fun. But it wasn't the only thing that we've talked about. Um, the essential viewing list for season two on Trek FM this past week. So here are a couple other things that you may have missed elsewhere this week on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. You've heard Chief Tripp sign on. Uh, I'm serious, Ken, actually out of the chair, please.
2: Okay, okay, oh, God. <laughs> I guess the Commodore has the con
0: (laughs) to the journey. All right. Next one is from Damien Haywood and uh, Damien. Come on. Which Voyager crew member would you hate? to be stuck in the Delta Flyer with. He's always so negative. I called him on this the other day. I said, Damien, why always with the negativity? He said, at least I'm consistent. The 602 Club.
2: We start getting hints of Thor. We start getting hints of Cap. We start getting hints of the entire Avengers crew, and we get Black Widow. So, I mean, Iron Man 2, considering how maybe that's not my favorite movie of the MCU, really does set up a lot of what is to come.
0: Literary Treks
2: you know visually to me this is one of my favorite eras of star trek you know those monster maroon coats they're wearing and they're just
0: absolutely gorgeous and you know i've a lot of people talked about wanting to get a captain
2: sulu star trek series and one of the big reasons for me that that would be so great is to see this era played out visually on a regular basis
0: women at warp
1: her, her voice as a computer voice has become so iconic that when Google started developing what is now known as Google Now, that, that personal assistant you can speak to, um, they had initially codenamed it Google Majel. That's so cool. Isn't that awesome?
0: Meta Trex.
1: And I kind of had the jingle in my head. You can be a winner at the game yes. of life. And I was trying to think of the Star Trek version of that. You know, you, you, you can be a winner of the poker game of life on the Enterprise. Uh, <laughs> on
2: the it Interpre- didn't really roll
1: off the tongue. So. It was great until you added on the
0: Enterprise. Melodic Treks. The reason why I think Brian Wrightsell would be a more plausible choice is because he has worked with Fuller in the past. They worked together on Hannibal. He scored that series all 39 episodes. The neat thing about Brian Wrightsell's music is it's more of a sound design than it is a score. Saturday Morning Trek. One of the characters is sizably larger than the, than the other. So he's just
1: closer to the camera, Aaron, obviously. But he's actually behind the other person. He's a giant. <laughs> Wait, Then he doesn't need a laser cutter. He can just lift the hatch
2: up with it. <laughs> go down together. Okay. Arr. Continuing mission.
1: Yeah, and of course, another great thing is when it's it's all finished and you look at it and go, yeah, we made that together. Yeah. That's that's one of the greatest moments and people respond to it and say, "Oh, that's that's pretty well made. The effects are great, the actors are are great, uh, even though they're Dutch trying to speak English, right?" <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm.
0: So, Mr. Ataz, as everyone's kind of digesting their lists in the next week or so, how can they get access to all of the great other content that we have for them on Trek FM?
2: You can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. And of course, you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at Trek FM, and you can grab the RSS link there as well. And if you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes, and it helps us increase our visibility for new listeners.
0: And You're absolutely right. We have a lot of content and a lot of different ways to be able to get to that content. iTunes is one way to keep our visibility high. So if there's a a review that you would like to give us or a star rating, please do so. Uh, We love hearing those, and we would love to read many of your reviews on the air, so please, uh, we encourage you to help bring us that visibility on iTunes. Another way that you can bring visibility to Trek FM is through a program we have here called Patreon. Patreon.com slash TrekFM. So, Ken, as one of the associate producers for this show and for the network, you came in through Patreon.com. So please let all of our listeners know all of the different advantages that they can get through supporting us through this financial. Sure, aid so program. Patreon
1: is the online service that allows our listeners to contribute to Trek.fm. Contributing to the network, you not only get to listen to the talent and to hear from your favorite host you also get to guest host if you pay $15 a month there's a great perk you can join the patron zone on the patron zone they they, they meet twice a week I'm sorry twice a month bi-monthly that's uh hosted now by Aaron and the show is is, is really taking off in fact I think I've come up with some brilliant ideas that's really going to take it to the next level that I have to share with Aaron very quickly and um, if you if you if you donate whatever you can, whether it's one dollar, whatever you can, whatever you can do, you get access to the Patron Zone, and this is where Chris and Aaron have provided some great downloads and screensavers and other items for you to, to enjoy. At the $25 level, you get to be an associate producer of the show of your choice, and we would love, love to add more associate producers to the show. We've got two outstanding ones already, but it it really does help us because it is very expensive to run the network. It is 100% listener supported. You know, you don't have ads interrupting this podcast. You don't have those types of things because... We are so proud to be able to bring it to you and we couldn't do it without your help. So if you find that you have any money that you can spare for the network, please. Uh, go on to patreon.com that's patreo ncom slash trek fm and become a trek fm patron absolutely thank you so much ken and as you mentioned we have two associate producers that have come in
0: through that program for the show we have renee roberts m res as i mentioned before and richard rutledge so thank you for supporting the show and all of your patronage as being our associate producers you can find renee on twitter at m one seven oh one and you can find richard at r-u-t eight nine seven two there are variety of different ways to let us know how we can best serve you as your hosts for Standard Orbit and make the programming the way that you want to have it. And to obviously correct us at times where we're kind of uh, falling a little bit of sleep on the wheel here in terms of our accuracy. So if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Trek FM contact and look in the sidebar on the show page. Or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook, facebook.com slash trek.fm and I have mentioned this throughout the course of the show. You can find us on the Babel Conference on Facebook just type B A B E L into the search field on Facebook or go to our website on trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. The Babel Conference is a fantastic place where you can find and continue all the discussions that we have here for you on the shows, or get in touch with the hosts, or interact with all different fans in, any, in a variety of different ways. And there are so many topics that are going on, but it is Star Trek 24 7, and you can find topics that are the most interesting for you to jump in on that discussion. So Please, again, the Babel Conference on Facebook. So, as we wrap up everything here, I'm sure that our listeners would like to get in touch with both of you, just in case, for Ken, in case they want to stump Mr. ATAS and send their questions your way. So, please let
1: everyone know how they can get in touch with you across the internet. Yeah, so for me, it's pretty simple, folks. I'm on the Babel Conference, I'm on it continually. So please, if you do have a question to stump Mr. Ataz, just IM me directly, and that way it keeps him from seeing it, and we can see if we can stump him. It is not an easy thing to do, believe me. We've tried many times, and that is the best way to get in touch with me. So don't hesitate to IM or friend me on Facebook, and I look forward to speaking, I guess, through the interwebs with all of you.
0: And Jeff, how about you? How can our listeners find you across the interwebs?
2: Well, if you don't have an access to an Atavicron or even a time tunnel, uh, you can find me on the Babel Conference on Facebook. Uh, I'm also, in addition to being a co-host here on Standard Orbit, I'm also a co-host on Warp 5, the Enterprise podcast on the network. I'm on Twitter at Harlander, and I'm a supporter of the network through Patreon. You can also check out my website. It's been called The Grand Unified Theory of Star Trek, and that's at trekopedia.com.
0: And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network or on the Babel Conference. You can also find me on Twitter at Starfighter1701. And along with being a host here for Standard Orbit, I'm an executive producer for Trek FM, the network. And I'm also a proud patron of the network through Patreon.com slash trekfm
2: So thanks, everyone, for listening and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit.